Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Uh, Braveheart is our current teaching series. This is going to take us through the summer months. And uh, the subtitle is Courage in a World of Compromise. We've titled this weekend's message, Half-Heartedness. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges. Chapter 1, we'll start there with verse 1 and head all the way into chapter 2, verse 5. Okay, pop quiz time. Let me ask you two questions we talked about last week. Uh, here's the first uh, question. What's the most frequent command in the Bible? Yell it out to me. Fear not. Don't be afraid. What's the most frequent promise in the Bible? I will be with you. Oh, I love those. Fear not. Be strong and courageous. Why? Because he is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Now take a look at your sermon notes. Part of your intro there. Fullness of life is to us what the promised land was to Israel. As they fought their way into possession of the promised land, we must fight on toward maturity, meeting and defeating enemies that would stand in our way. What are our enemies? Not the people sitting next to you. We've got three enemies. The Bible makes it very clear in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We have our own sinful nature. We have our culture, our society, which is the antithesis of, you know, the values of our society or the antithesis of the values of God's word. And then, of course, we have Satan, our adversary. The Bible is very clear about that. But to face our enemies, to experience the fullness of life that we have in Jesus Christ, we need his presence and we need, if we're going to be strong and courageous against our enemies, if we're going to live life to its fullest, we've got to be reminded that we have his presence, never to leave us or forsake us. And the way that we get this from, from a concept to a reality, I mean, you can say, oh yeah, he's always with me, but it's altogether another thing to, to live in light of that, to live in the reality of that, where it's a, it's a reality in your life. And the way that we do that, we studied last weekend in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, he said, don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your eyes on his word. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, and then you'll be able to do everything that is written in it, and you'll be prosperous and successful. So through God's word, through our time together here today, and then as you study throughout the week and you get into small groups, the idea is to get the reality of his presence deep within your heart, and then you'll be able to face anything in life. And so we're going to talk about really this, the, uh, the snare of half-heartedness, and oftentimes when we don't experience his presence, it creates all kinds of problems in our lives. That's where we're headed. We've got a lot of stuff to cover this morning. So before we take a look at this text, and you'll see it's kind of divided up, so keep your Bibles open because we're gonna read a few verses and then I'll give you some fill in the blanks and then we'll read a few verses and, and then we'll fill in some blanks. We'll kind of work our way that way through the text. But let's begin with a word of prayer before we take a look at this text and unpack these notes. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you because you first loved us. Father God, you sent your son Jesus to rescue us and give to us fullness of life, a quantity and a quality of life that is supremely incomparable to any life, any life apart from you. As we study your word, may the reality of your covenant love to never leave us or forsake us make us strong and courageous to fight on toward maturity, defeating anything that would stand in our way to wholehearted devotion to you for our joy, your glory, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 
Amen. Take a look at Judges chapter 1, starting at verse 1, we'll begin reading after the death of Joshua. Remember Joshua? So this is after his death. So Joshua was, uh, was the guy that took over for Moses. Remember Moses? Moses led him out of Egyptian bondage. They wandered around in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. It should have only taken them how many days to get into the promised land? Probably about 14 or so, but they wandered around in the wilderness and a whole generation died off. There were only two that made it into the promised land out of that generation. Anybody know their names? Joshua and Caleb. We're going to talk about Caleb in just a little bit, but Joshua uh, dies and he had led them into the promised land and they had divided up the land. Now it's time for the tribes, the tribes of Israel to go in and drive out their enemies. That's where we are in the story. And uh, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. When, you, when they list these names, these are tribes. These are groups of people. But notice how Judah responds. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will, will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Here's your first fill in the blank. True lordship, or if indeed you are fully devoted to Jesus Christ, you will seek God's guidance. There's your fill in the blank. God's guidance in every area of, uh, of your life, especially in times of transition. So they're in time of transition, but you're going to seek God's guidance in every area of your life. That's called lordship. Now I gave you kind of a list, kind of a punch list of when you're wanting to know God's will for your life, his guidance. It's right there on the notes. So you look to the word of God. You look to the Spirit of God. You look to the people of God. So you need some wise counselors. We call them life groups here, small groups. And then you look to the providence of God. Open and close doors. And then you look to the wisdom of God. If anyone lacks wisdom, James 1.5. Of course, we know that the, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so that's true lordship will seek God's guidance. So that's a good thing. They start off really well. The problem is, is that almost immediately Judah fails to fully obey. They go, but they do not go alone. Their discipleship is half-hearted because they, Judah said to Simeon, his brother, God didn't say that. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And then Judah immediately says, Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, and then we'll help you out. But that's not what God said. Here's the next point on your notes. Failure to completely obey God's clear commands are the seeds of unbelief. And arrogance revealing our half-heartedness. So we're already seeing this kind of attitude of half-heartedness begin to take hold. I've got some good cross-references here. Obviously, in Joshua 1, 8 through 9 is what I quoted earlier. Don't look to the left or the right. Keep your eyes fixed on God's word. Meditate on it day and night. And then you'll be able to do everything that is written in it, and you'll be prosperous and successful. There's an interesting little metaphor, kind of a story, parable that Jesus shares in Luke 6, 46 through 49. And he says to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I say? What is he saying? He's saying, well, there's an inconsistency. If I'm referring to him as Lord, and yet I'm not seeking his guidance in every aspect of my life, particularly in times of transition, he's not the Lord of my life. I'm probably looking to somewhere else for that kind of guidance. And he goes on and he talks about a person who comes to him 
and hears what he says and then applies it to their lives is like the person who builds their home upon rock. And then he compares that person to someone who comes to him, hears what he says, but doesn't obey him, doesn't follow what he's saying. And he compares that person to someone who builds his house upon what? Anybody? Upon sand. And it talks about this storm, which storms are inevitable in life. We're going to have storms. And the home that's still standing is the one that's built on rock. And what, what, what home is that? That's the one that not only comes to God, but hears God, hears the Lord, but obeys the Lord. So just being here isn't going isn't, isn't to help you to build the house. It's being here, listening, and obeying God's word. And, and then in doing that, then you're going to begin to have this storm-proof life. Otherwise, this is what happens. It's very subtle. And, and sin begins in the heart. And the heart is the, is the core of our commitments. It's what we're ultimately trusting, loving, and hoping in the most. And we all, we all put our hope, trust, love in something if it's not Christ. And so this idea of unbelief is in essence saying to God... God, you're holding out on me. I don't, I, I'm not going to trust you completely. I'm going to get some friends to kind of help me out here. I know you told me to go in there and clear out the enemy, to drive out the enemy, but I'm kind of doubting that maybe you're holding out on me here. That's unbelief. And then arrogance or pride is I know better than God. So rooted deep within our heart, sin always starts with unbelief. Look at Adam and Eve, chapter 3 of Genesis. Remember what they were kind of thinking, what was going on in their heart? God's holding out on me. You know, he's keeping us from what, where we can really experience life to its fullest. That's unbelief. And then I know better than God, so I'm going to go ahead and eat from the tree that I was told not to. That's the root of sin. So disobedience, when we, when we disobey God's clear commands from his word, it is a trampling on his love and wisdom. So you get this kind of slightly in this tribe of Judah. They're kind of like, okay, yeah, we're going to follow you, but not completely. It's this half-heartedness. And, um, and you're going to see this is going to certainly create problems. Next point on your notes, there's a difference between willful, defiant obedience or disobedience, I won't, and immaturity disobedience, I can't. So defiant disobedience is I won't, immature disobedience is or disobedience is I can't. There's a difference between the two. Your two-year-old, anyone who has ever had a two-year-old, you know that they're going to trash their, your, your kitchen or they're going to trash the dining room. They're going to have more food on them and around them than in them. How many have ever experienced that before with your kids? Yes, it's just a matter of time. But if that two-year-old grows up to be a 16-year-old and, and they're still doing that, there's a major problem. And there's a major problem, especially if you married that one that continues to do that, huh? You're married to that one. So, so that's just flat out not, I can't, but you won't. And there's a major difference, major difference between the two, and you need to keep that in mind. There is age-appropriate behavior physically and spiritually, even looking at our own lives. Now, what's going to be interesting about this later on in the story, we're going to find out whether this is an I, I can't or I won't disobedience as you see this begin to play its way out in this narrative. Now, even though Judah shows half-hearted discipleship, the Lord gave their enemies into their hands. 
So even though they're being a little bit half-hearted here, and, and this, that's a good side note. This is not part of your notes. This is just a side note that I want to share with you very quickly. And, and it goes like this. If your expectation of God's blessing depends on how well you feel you're living the Christian life, then you don't understand God's grace. Because they were given the promised land not based on their goodness and greatness, but on God's goodness and greatness. See, you're not given fullness of life through Jesus Christ because you're really a good person. <laughs> Are you really great? It's because God is good and God is great. So he continues to work in their life. And we're going to see God continue to work in their lives throughout this book. And it's going to get harsh. Because these people, you're going to go, wow, these people are really messed up. And the story is going to really get messed up as we work through this, this story. But it's all by God's grace. He continues to pursue us. He continues to love us. Now look at verses 4 through 7. Let's continue reading in our text. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek. This is a king, and oftentimes these cities would have kings, and Adonai means really lord or king. King Bezek, that's the name of the city. So Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and found against him, or fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Wow. That's my, uh, my first Mother's Day tip on how to make your kids behave right there. <laughs> just, just thumbs, big toes, that's all you need to do. Now, um, this is pretty vicious. And this is going to teach us something. Uh, I think it's really important. And notice his response, verse 7. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Now why would they remove their thumbs and their toes? Because removing thumbs hindered effective use of weapons, a sword. You couldn't hang on to a sword and then they would remove their big toes uh, because it made their footing unreliable. This was taking away one's power and authority. Now the crazy thing about this is that uh, Judah should have never done this. And they're becoming just like the culture. They're being more shaped by the world than God's word. Take a look at your next point on your notes. There's a fine line between justice and vengeance. Or you should put above that revenge. That's what I'm talking about. So there's a fine line between justice and revenge. When we cross it, we become just like the evil that is being done to us. I'm going to get into a really controversial topic right now. Just real quick. You need to listen up and, and understand this. So there's a major difference. We should seek justice but not vengeance or revenge. Um, oftentimes people, when they read this Old Testament text and they go, why would God allow them? Isn't this similar to what ISIS is doing? Well, no, it isn't. If you really study the story, this military campaign is not an ethnic cleansing or an imperialistic conquest, but it's carried out as God's arm of judgment through direct revelation by God, Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. This is an isolated case in Scripture never to be repeated. And, uh, but, but it brings up a topic of when is it right to fight? And uh, is there ever a, an appropriate time to fight as, as a nation or as a people? And, 
And I think the Bible is very clear about that. The Bible tells us that God has instituted three entities of authority for our protection and provision. Anybody know what those three entities are? It's the home. That's, that's one place of authority, the home. And then the church, you're sitting in another right here. We as, as a people, there's a level of authority. But there's also government. Government, and government has been given the authority based on Romans 13, if that's not on your notes, write that down, Romans 13, 1 through 7, to bear the sword, and that's part of God's design. So when is it right to fight? It is right to fight when we are preserving freedom, protecting innocent people, and, pre and preventing the spread of evil. So what they're doing to the Canaanites is really what we should be doing as a nation against ISIS. We should destroy them and wipe them out. Does that make sense? I mean, and that's, that's exactly what we should be doing because they're vicious people. And, uh, but what's happening here is that Judah's kind of doing a little bit like, it would be like if we as a nation took out ISIS, but we went and cut their heads off and then put them on the internet and, and made fun of them and drug their bodies around and stuff like that. God didn't say to do that. He said to destroy them, defeat them, drive them out. Don't become like the evil that's being done to you. So the Bible's really, really clear about those things. And so that's what you have. And so you don't want to step over the line. There's a fine line between justice and revenge. And when we cross it, we become just like the evil that's being done to us. And uh, so there, that's, that's that. I won't talk any more on that because we'll, we'll probably get into it a little bit later on. But you just need to keep that in mind. Next thing, God's judgment throughout history is to give people over to the consequences of the life that they have chosen. It is the law of sowing and reaping. And after you fill in the blank, you need to look up here because you got to understand this idea of this, the law of sowing and reaping. You're, go, you're, you're sowing. Today you're sowing something. It's not a matter of, you know, whether or not you're going to sow. You sow every day. So the question is, is what are you sowing? Because whatever you're sowing, you will reap what you sow later than you sow, more than you sow. Okay? And so, it's, it's, it's quite uh, interesting. In fact, it tells us in Galatians 6, 7 through 9, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap destruction. So, if you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap life. And so, you got to know, what am I sowing to? What am I, when I watch this on TV, what am I sowing to? When I listen to these people, what am I sowing to? What's going on? When I hang out with these certain people, what's going on in my life? I'm sowing... And it's just a matter of time I'm going to be reaping whatever I'm sowing. And, uh, and so that's, and, and he says, do not grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. That's Galatians 6, 7 through 9. It's interesting, this Adonai Bezek appears to accept that he got what he deserved. Did you notice that? He says, yeah, I had 70 of these kings that I had begging for scraps under my table and I cut their you know, their thumbs and, and toes off. Now, th this is what you need to keep in mind is that Adonai Bezek didn't become a thumb and big toe amputating maniac overnight, okay? There was something that went on in his heart earlier in his life. And there, was, there were thoughts in his, in his mind and his heart that became actions, that became habits, that became character, that became his destiny, but it all starts in our thoughts, our thoughts. And actually, it starts much deeper than that. It's, it's really what's most important to us. It's our heart. 
It's the core of our beliefs and what we're trusting in and what we're looking to as our, as our hope. And, and that's what happened with him. And so you've got to constantly, you know, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Now, let's continue on with the story. Having won this victory, Judah continues to take, to take their inheritance in verses 8 through 11. So they continue to take their inheritance. And the writer now narrows the focus to one spiritually brave family in Israel, the family of Caleb. Remember Caleb, Joshua and Caleb? And this family is an example of wholehearted devotion to God. Look at verses 12 through 16. Let me continue reading. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kerioth Sefer and captures it, I will give him Oxa, my daughter, for a wife. Now, why would he do that? He's looking for a, a man of character. He's looking for a man who is fully devoted to God. And if you're fully devoted to God, I'm going to give you my daughter for you as a wife. And, and this guy by the name of Othniel, we're going to see about him in chapter 3 of Judges. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Oxa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him. So this is his daughter. So you can see that she has this full devotion to God also, what she's asking for. She urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. So this is just represents this, this covenant faithfulness, courageous obedience in response to God's promises. I want all that God has promised me. I want, I want to live for him. I'm going to be fully devoted to him. And that's what she's saying. She says, give me a blessing since you have set me in the land of the Negeb. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. That's pretty important if you have some land. It's got some springs running through it. And the descendants of, and then it goes on, verse 16 is really another group of people that are also showing this covenant faithfulness and courageous obedience in response to God's promises. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. Next point on your notes, covenant faithfulness and courageous obedience in response to God's promises is evidence of wholehearted discipleship. Man, I want all that God has for me. Now, the reason why we sin, once again, we sin because we think God's holding out on us and we think we know better than God. Nobody sins out of duty. We sin because, it, so when someone, so when someone commits adultery, when someone lies, when someone, whatever we do as it, as it relates to different from what God has established for us, we believe in our heart somehow that I'm going to be happier by pursuing this than, than by pursuing God. So when you look in your heart, that, that's what's going on. Sin offers a promise of happiness. But the power of sin's promise is always broken by the power of God's. So when I begin to understand God's promise for me, I'm fully devoted to him. That's a lie. I'm not going to find any greater happiness out there somewhere in this world apart from him. No, it's only in him and obeying him fully. So my full devotion to him comes as a result that I know that's where I'm going to find my greatest happiness. It's in him. And to think otherwise is to believe, is to believe the lie. Now, what is this life that we're talking about, this fullness of life? Is it more stuff? Certainly God can give us more stuff, but listen to me, you guys know this, I've been around a lot of people that had a whole lot of stuff on the outside, and they were pretty empty on the inside. So it's not the stuff that we're talking about here, though God can give us stuff and he can take away our stuff, but it's not about stuff. This is what it's about. 
He doesn't promise us, when we look in the Bible, he doesn't promise us better life. So when we're talking about promised land, we're not talking necessarily better life circumstances, but we're talking about a better life. In spite of those circumstances, Jesus was very clear with his disciples in, in John 16, In this world, you will have persecution. You're going to have problems. You're going to have pain. I'm thankful that he didn't stop there. He went on and said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm not giving you a better life. I'm giving you a better life. I'm not giving you a better life circumstances. I'm giving you a better life in spite of those circumstances. It's important to keep in mind. You guys have heard this before too. We don't follow him. We don't serve him because he makes life better. We follow him and we serve him because he is what? He's better than life. We have him. We have him. That's the fullness of life that he's talking about here. So when we're talking about promised land, conquering our enemies, Satan's sin, and society in, in the sense of the culture values and all of that, kind of fighting all that stuff, staying away from that, staying focused on him, fully obeying him, that's where we're going to find life. That's, that's all part of that. Covenant faithfulness and courageous obedience in response to God's promises is evidence of wholehearted discipleship. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. I, I was reading a scripture this last week, Psalm 37, 16. It says, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. What is he saying there? He's saying nothing compares to the wealth of his presence. Did you remember the song we just sang? I wrote the words down. I've sang it many times before. I'm running to your arms. The riches of your love will always be enough. Nothing compares to your embrace. <laughs> I love it. That's that's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's the Bible. I have him. And so if I have him, then I'm going to be courageous. I'm not going to be afraid of the things that come my way in life because I have him. But to get there, I've got to study God's word. I've got to meditate on it. And the reality of that begins to take hold of my life. And then in verse 17 and 18, the story goes back to Judah as they continue to take their inheritance. And if chapter 1 finished with verse 18, I mean, that would almost be completely encouraging, but, but verse 19 just shocks us. Look at verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of fire. Was it could not or would not? Well, it says here they could not, but later on we're going to find out that God says, no, you would not. I told you to go in there and clear the land. I gave you the ability to do that, and you refused to do that. Here's the next point on your notes. It is not our circumstances that defeat us, but our failure to evaluate our circumstances in light of God's grace. It's not that we're facing uh, enemies in chariots, chariots of iron. That's why one of the reasons why Israel would fight them up in the mountains because those chariots of iron wouldn't work so well in the mountains. But this is down on the flat land. And so they feel like, oh, we can't do this. We can't overcome this problem. And so it is not our circumstances that defeat us, but our failure to evaluate our circumstances in light of God's grace, his unmerited favor. See, it's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings. It is our lack of faith in his strength. Don't measure, don't measure your enemy's strength against your strength, but measure your enemy's strength against God's strength. See, you're, you're looking at your circumstances and going, oh, this is overwhelming. Of course it is. You don't have the ability to get through those circumstances. You need him. But you measure it against his strength. He's for you, not against you. 
And that's what they should have done, but they didn't. And so they're overcome, and they don't drive out the enemy. And then here, look at this next point. Half-hearted belief and obedience is contagious and spreads. So they're supposed to lead the way, and this begins to spread throughout all the tribes. We become like the people we hang out with. It's called discipleship. So half-hearted belief and obedience is contagious and spreads, and we become like the people we hang out with. It's called discipleship. By the way, some of you probably need to quit listening to so much talk radio. Okay, I should, probably shouldn't have said that, huh? Now I'm stepping on toes. But sometimes if you listen to too much talk radio, you watch too much news, it just drives you crazy. You're hanging out with those folks. No wonder you're so ticked off about our, the political system of our, our country. There's almost bitterness brewing. You're angry. And you need to be careful about that. See, our character is mainly shaped by our primary social community, the people with whom we eat, play, converse, and study with 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It says, uh, evil company corrupts good morals. Psalm 1, 1, it says, blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful. So, so there is no way you can grow spiritually apart from deep involvement in a community of other believers. We call them life groups here. I mean, you need to be hanging out with other Christians. And, uh, and if they're not really positive, they're not a positive influence, get rid of them and get some new ones. Uh, go find another small group. Because they need to be stirring up within you greater appetite for God to know him and to experience the fullness of life that he has for you. And so when we talk about this idea of discipleship, what movies, music, magazines, TV, radio, what's, you know, the whole social media... The essence of becoming a disciple is becoming like the people we hang out with the most. And this is what's happening. Half-hearted belief and obedience is contagious and spreads. We become like the people we hang out with, and it's called discipleship. And so when you look at the story, look at the next point, and you know it's verses 21 through 36, the rest of the chapter, chapter 1. It says, eight times they did not drive out their enemies. And God had already said, hey, I want you to drive out the enemies. But they did not drive out the enemies. Um, and if you were to kind of go through that, verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 22 through 26, the house of Joseph makes covenants with the Canaanite. Verses 27 through 28, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and exploited them as forced labor. Convenience trumps obedience. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites and let them live among them. Verse 30, Zebulun opts for forced labor. Verse 31 through 33, the people of Asher and Naphtali, you know, even do worse. Instead of allowing the Canaanites to live among them, they live among the Canaanites. And then verses uh, 34 through 36, the tribe of Dan become confined to the hill country. And the reason is because the superior willpower and courage of their enemies, God's people become less brave than the people who do not know him. Next point on your notes, if we do not defeat the enemy completely, the enemy will eventually defeat us. <clears throat> and the Bible gives us all sorts of uh, different metaphors to help us to understand that it takes just a little bit of sin in our life. Song of Solomon 2.15, it says that it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. I, marriage relationships, you know, all of a sudden you don't wake up and you're ready to get a divorce. There's little things in your life that begin to eat away. At those, at those vines, so to speak, in your marriage relationship. Uh, Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole batch. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.29 through 30, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, 
Cut it off. Take drastic measures to remove these things, even if they're so small. See, the Israelites now live among idol-worshiping Canaanites. Like buried mines, these idols lie dormant, ready to explode in the, in the spiritual lives of God's people. So it's just, it can be just small things. So there's this complacency that begins to take place, which leads to compromise. Remember the cycle that we talked about last week? We're going to see it even more so this next week. But there's this complacency. Complacency meaning as it relates to your relationship with God. Are you finding your deepest satisfaction in him? Because immediately if you're not, you're going to think you're going to find it out there in the world somewhere. So it begins, you begin to compromise. Listen, David didn't become an adulterer and a murderer overnight. He began to take steps, one step at a time, away from God. He should have been at war. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, and what was he doing? He was just staying home. Complacency, compromise. Ooh, look at her. Wow. Maybe I ought to have her come up. So he kept taking steps. At any time, he could have turned back. But any time, but what, what happened? He lost the joy of his salvation. And this unbelief began to take root. You know what? God's holding out on me. I think I know better than God. And then lust, and then malice. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said when a man looks at a woman and lusts after her in his heart, he's committed adultery in his heart. Why would he say that? Because those are the seeds that are going to lead you in that path that are going to be destructive. Jesus also said if you have malice in your heart, that's murder. Jesus also talked about fear. How many of you have ever seen the movie As Good As It Gets? Jack Nicholson. That's a crazy movie, isn't it? Jack Nicholson just didn't, didn't become a paranoid, uh, schizophrenic nut job worried about, you know, germs where he would wash his hands with a bar of soap and throw it away and then get another bar of soap and wash his hands. What, what did that, where did that start? Well, it started just with a thought. I don't, I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get sick. And that begins to control your life. And it dominates your solitude. And that's all you can think of. And so he goes to a restaurant and brings his own little uh, fork and knife in a little package. And, and, and those kind of things begin to take place deep within our heart, little by little by little. If we do not defeat the enemy completely, the enemy will eventually defeat us. Now, we are inclined to think they did their best and have sympathy for them until we are confronted and shocked by God's assessment. And chapter 1 has given us the facts, but now we have God's explanation. Look at Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's read this, and then we'll, we'll finish this up. This is God's explanation. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. By the way, this is not an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. You know the difference? An angel is an angel. An angel of the Lord is an angel. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. This is a Christophany. So this is Jesus showing up here. Pretty important stuff. And so the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, now check this out, this is good stuff, man. So, so this tells us, even in the Old Testament, it's covenant love, it's by God's grace, and he reestablishes to them, hey, here's the, here's the agreement we had. I brought you up from Egypt. By the, by the way, that's a picture of our being set free from the slavery of sin when we come to Jesus, commit our life to him. So I brought you up out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers, fullness of life, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 
And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods, their gods shall be a snare to you. Next week we're going to talk more about this. It really gives some great description of what idols are. Idols are, can be good things that have become ultimate things in our lives. And they become thorns and snares to us. And so we're going to talk about living in a land of idols next week. And that's really the root of our issues in our lives. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place, Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now check this out. This is, this is what you need to keep in mind. Verse 1, when, when he went up, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. This is the place where God forgave their sins and entered into covenant relationship with them by grace, motivated by his steadfast love. Here's the, here's the point, okay. I mean, this is great. As I was reading through this, I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. So don't miss anything from this point on, okay? Because what we're gonna talk about is really fundamentally what the Christian life is all about. If you miss this, you don't understand what the Christian life is about. And uh, our, our justification is the basis of our sanctification, in other words, the verdict comes before the performance. The verdict about you comes before your performance. It's not your performance and then God gives you a verdict where he says, oh, okay, then I'll accept you. No, no, no. You're my people. I love you. I accept you. Come on. Now, out of that, live in light of the fact that I have lavished my love upon you. Does that make sense? So when, we, when there's a breakdown in our sanctification, it's because we're, we're not living in, the, in light of our justification. I mean, he's done everything possible so that we could have all of the acceptance, security, and significance we'll ever need in Jesus. But we forget that. They forgot that. That's why he's coming in there and he's reminding them of that. I mean, do you have any idea what you have in Jesus Christ? Oh, my goodness. You should have all the, all the strength and courage to face anything. But we don't because we're not living in reality of what we have in him. And that's why he's reminding them of that. It's our blessing that leads to to our obedience. Listen, listen to me. Listen, you have never been more loved. You've never been more loved. And you will never be more loved than, than through God and what he's done through Jesus Christ. And so when you begin to let that love take hold of your life, it makes a difference in how you begin to live out your life. Next point on your notes. God wants lordship over every area of our lives. And what areas of your life are you saying, I can't that's immaturity. But God is saying, you won't. Willful defiance. And, and I don't know if you noticed this, but in Judges chapter 1, verse 19, he said, we read that the Israelites were unable. I can't. And, and in Judges 2, 2, God says, no, you disobeyed my voice. You won't. And this is a pattern throughout the book of Judges. And I gave you three. This is from uh, Tim Keller's uh, commentary. On this book of Judges, three areas of I can't justifications for disobedience. Forgiveness, I've heard that before and I've done that before. I can't forgive them. What they did to me, I can't forgive them. No, no. It's not that you can't, you won't. Because I'm providing for you the ability to be able to forgive them. And I know it takes time, but I'm giving you the ability to do that. And the next one is truth. I can't tell them the truth. They won't be my friend anymore. And the, and the third one is I can't overcome that problem. It's got a hold of my life. And I understand the addictive nature of sin and because those thoughts become habits, they become 
character that become ultimately our destiny. And it takes, takes counseling. It takes CR. We have Celebrate Recovery. It takes those things to really root those things out. Any failure to obey is a failure to remember. Verse 1, God is the God who rescues. I brought you up out of Egypt. And then God is the God who remains faithful. I will never break my covenant with you. Next point on your notes, half-hearted repentance will not bring lasting change, causing sin to be a thorn and a snare in our lives. So this is what they have because they don't, that doesn't bring any kind of lasting change. Listen to what, what half-hearted repentance is. Half-hearted repentance is sorrow for the pain it has caused me. But you're looking at that and you're saying, hey, but they, they, they wept, they gave sacrifice. But it's half-hearted repentance because they were more concerned about the pain that it was going to cause them rather than the pain that it caused God. See, and that's when you move over to that area where it becomes more of a godly repentance versus a, a worldly repentance. I gave you the verse there. It's found in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. I've seen this time and time again. I see where people reconcile in relationships when they have no business doing that and, and hooking back up with somebody that's potentially not trustworthy because you saw the alligator tears and you immediately run into that relationship and then... What you want is true repentance, godly repentance. And the way that you judge it is you can only trust them based on time, over time, based on their performance because it's going to be lasting change. So you have to give them time and really evaluate their life. But you've got to make sure that it's true godly repentance rather than worldly repentance. Now now we come to the tension of the book. Okay, wake up. Hit the person next to you and just wake them up right now. Go, hey, wake up, pay attention. Because now we're going to hit the tension of the book. This is the tension throughout the whole Bible right here. The tension of judges. It's the plot line throughout the whole Bible. And here's the question. Don't answer it out loud. But I'm going to give you the answer in just a minute. But are God's blessings conditional or, or unconditional? What do, I, I said not to answer it out loud. Who said that? Okay. You're, you get to pass, okay? You're a good man. So... So are God's blessings conditional or unconditional? Let me give you a couple things. There's a couple different perspectives. There's the liberalism, which is relativism perspective, and it would answer like this. Yes, you should obey God, but in the end, God loves and accepts everybody. Love trumps law. Love is more important than law. And then there's the legalism. The moralism says, yes, God is very loving, but in the end, you've got to be good or God won't bless you. Law trumps love. Law is more important than love. And also we've got the character of God we've got to take into consideration. You've got the love of God, that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification, our reconciliation with him. But then there's also the justice of God, that aspect of his nature that demands punishment of sin. Are God's blessings conditional or unconditional? Right in there, yes, both. The answer is both. Why? Oh, I love this. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Because on the cross, Christ absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love you absolutely, unconditionally. These people are going to do some despicable things, and yet their God continues to pursue them time and time again. He brings these judges in to bring their hearts back to him. Time and time again. 
That's the wonder of the cross. The wonder of the cross is that it satisfies both the love and the justice of God. You're saying, wait a minute, these are Old Testament people. They didn't have the cross. No, they looked ahead and we look back. Romans 4 makes that very clear. Uh, Hebrews 11 makes it very clear. They looked ahead, we look back. It's all still by God's grace. It's all by God's grace. It's all about covenant relationship from cover to cover. You see it? You see it right here in the text. And you see it in, in Exodus when the law was given in chapter 20 of Exodus. What preceded chapter 20? Chapter 19. Covenant love. And so that's, that's important to keep in mind. Okay, we're almost finished here. Last fill in the blank. And then we're going to take communion. Wholehearted obedience. So what this does, when we begin to understand the wonder of the cross, this creates wholehearted obedience. I take sin seriously and resist it like crazy because Jesus died for my sins. He bled and died. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. There was no other way. But when I fail, there is no condemnation or despair. Romans 8.1. My obedience is a way of saying thank you to God and becoming like God, but not the way of earning my way to God. We already have God through Jesus Christ. So I, I, I don't have, you know, uh, worldly repentance. When I sin, I have godly repentance. God, I trampled on your love and wisdom. I thought I, I, thought I could find greater happiness out there, but I know it's only found in you. See that, that unbelief and pride? And you come running back into his arms to experience his embrace. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. As we prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Father God, we are in awe and wonder of the cross. You don't condone our sin nor compromise your standard, but on the cross, both your love and justice are fully satisfied. On the cross, your holiness is honored and our sin is punished and we are forever redeemed. God, you did what we cannot do so that we can be perfect before you, righteous before you. And, and so then out of that, out of that verdict, may we live wholehearted, obedient lives. And when we find ourselves sinning, that we would repent and come running back into your arms.